Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Beyond Fear listeners. Alyssa and I are taking a break for a few weeks to enjoy the summer. We will return with the last four episodes of Season 2 on August 9th. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. In our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Danielle Slakoff to talk about media depictions of interpersonal and sexual violence. We spoke at length about things like missing white woman syndrome and how the media drives our perceptions about real victims. Danielle spoke about how print media portrays images of racially minoritized survivors as blameworthy when compared with white survivors who are portrayed as blameless. The truth of the matter is that black women and girls experience sexual violence that repeatedly goes undisclosed and unaddressed. Here today to help us unpack how sexual violence impacts black women and girls are Dr. Carolyn West and Dr. LaDonna Long. Dr. Carolyn M. West is professor of clinical psychology and associate dean of special initiatives at the University of Washington. She is an award-winning author, internationally recognized speaker, documentary filmmaker, and expert witness. For more than three decades, she has been investigating gender-based violence with a special focus on domestic violence and sexual assault in the lives of African-American women. Her mission is to deliver keynote addresses, conduct workshops, and customize innovative training material to educate and equip professionals with the skills to provide culturally responsive services. Her vision is to educate, empower, and inspire a multicultural alliance of survivors and professionals to prevent all forms of violence. And Dr. LaDonna Long is an associate professor of criminal justice at Roosevelt University. Her research focuses on women's experience with victimization, particularly how race, class, and gender influences post-assault coping mechanisms. Her prior work focused on age and educational differences in African-American women who have experienced sexual victimization, as well as factors that predict disclosure of sexual victimization to health professionals. She has also published work on medical advocates' experiences in the emergency room with survivors and law enforcement, as well as vicarious trauma. Here at Beyond Fear, we tend to dive right into very difficult topics. Today is no different, but I do want to acknowledge up front how taxing it can be to talk about things that are close to our hearts and that directly affect the communities in which we are located. This is especially so when those conversations traverse multiple parts of our intersecting identities. So we so appreciate your willingness to talk through this with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for agreeing to be here. So we recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off, you can listen later, or you can even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I am Dr. Alexa Sardina. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. So thank you both so much for being here with us. And we'd like to start today by giving you both some space to talk about your work. Carolyn, you are a trained psychologist and LaDonna, you are a criminologist, yet both of you found your way to studying sexual violence. So we were wondering if you would share your um, how what led you to your respective fields more generally and then to sexual violence more specifically. LaDonna, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So. I tend to be a person who thinks that there are certain events in your life that prepare you for the work you're meant to do. Um, So I'm a huge introvert. And a plus of being an introvert is that I get to listen, learn and observe. And if I look back on my life, I think that my life was surrounded by 
strong Black women who experienced violence in their lives um, and exhibited the consequences of those events. Uh, so uh, one event that sticks out to me that I think was really the catalyst along with my family was I was a teacher assistant at a grade school. And I remember teachers telling me about a young girl who uh, was probably 10, 10 years old. And um, they were saying to be careful with her and uh, basically make sure that no boys were around her. So the, the problem was that she was known as a young girl who propositioned young boys. And instead of reaching out to her, they wanted to make sure that I protected the young boys. And I remember thinking, even I was about 16, thinking like, well, has anyone talked to the young girl? I mean, this isn't normal behavior, but to them, it was just that young black girl who's fast um, and um, was doing things that were inappropriate. And I just remember feeling that she must feel so isolated. Um, fast forward to uh, grad school, I became um, a person on the rape crisis hotline. I interned there and that led me to my dissertation with working with black women who had uh, experienced sexual violence. And it just reminded me of everything that I experienced as a young kid with my family, with the you know, elementary school where you know black women were kind of silenced in so many ways um, there experiences with sexual victimization were really traumatic, yet in spite of that, they had to figure out a way to survive in the world. Um, I decided to become a medical advocate for uh, one year. That was like a, a, an experience that I'll always treasure, but I don't think I could ever do that again. It was very traumatic for me. Um, but it, it all of those things led me to understand more about the impact that trauma, multiple types of trauma have on Black women and how they navigate that uh, in, in good ways and, and not so good ways, but also seeing how the legal system really does not help them. Um, it, it does a disservice to them and understanding that there needs to be al you know, alternative methods to helping Black women. So I, I feel like my whole life I've been kind of set up to be where I'm at right now. Thank you so much for sharing that, LaDonna. I always think it's so interesting to hear how people come to the space that they're passionate about and where they feel their work is most meaningful. Carolyn, do you want to share a little bit about your work and how you got there? Sure. You know, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, as you said, and I knew that I was going to start off being a domestic violence researcher, but I was also teaching human sexuality courses. So I was deeply committed to helping people have a healthy sexuality. And I knew that, and I knew that I had to also talk about violence as a part of that, because I knew that that really impacted people's ability to have a healthy sexuality. And in graduate school as well, had some experience that set me on that path. Uh, as part of my clinical training, I worked with survivors of sexual assault. Uh, and that was, uh, a very interesting time in my life professionally. And I had an experience with sexual harassment in graduate school, which culminated in me actually, it was the early 1990s around the time of Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas. And that resulted in me filing a lawsuit against the university and just really not being silent about it and going on to give radio, television, newspaper interviews and really learning that I had to speak out about these topics. And eventually the lawsuit was settled out of court, but that prompted the university to make some changes in their sexual harassment policy. So uh, really becoming an advocate around that time, around these issues. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, so let's kind of just dive right in. We know that sexual violence against Black women and girls happens at significantly high rates. Uh, so I'm wondering if either one of you or both of you uh, can talk about incidents and prevalence rates for us. And uh, perhaps maybe we can break this down between childhood victimization and victimization later in life. I can say about adults that uh, the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey found 
uh, about 21% of Black women have been raped after the age of 18, which translates into about 3 million Black women. Uh, and that's an estimate, and it's most likely an underestimate since we don't uh, talk about sexual violence in our communities very much. Um, and something similar, uh, I know I got some uh, information from the National Center on Violence Against Black Women in the Black Community. Uh, something that's often overlooked is that like one in four Black girls would be mm-hmm. sexually abused before the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a huge number of, of young women who are experiencing sexual victimization at an early age um, that, that they carry with them into adulthood. Um, and, and could lead to uh, you know, having other experiences with sexual victimization. So it, it's definitely multiple traumatic events that are happening across their lifetime. Mm-hmm. There's a great book called Love with Accountability, digging up the roots of child sexual abuse. Uh, it, it's gratifying to see more research and more discussions coming about about. Uh, child sexual abuse in our community. So that that's just one resource. And so LaDonna did a great job of kind of talking about this is unacknowledged part of sexual violence that we need to draw more attention to. And we can make sure that that uh, book is put in our show notes as a resource for people to look to. Uh, now, LaDonna, you've actually written quite a bit about uh, post-assault consequences. Can you share some insights in how sexual victimization impacts Black women? Sure. So um, we usually think of sexual assault as just one event, right? Like the the assault occurs and then uh, that's it. But what happens after the assault, uh, months, years after? And there's so much that wraps into that. And I would also say that and particularly for Black women, um, the added post-assault is linked back to historical and cultural context. Um, so there's the fear after the assault, the guilt, the shame. What could I have done differently? Uh, you know, uh, sometimes it adheres to um, I should have gone out that night or I should have been with that person, which is something that you typically see across um ethnic group sexual victimization. Um, there's the minimizing denial, which I see as self-protective factors, especially for Black women. Um, for example, you know, as an advocate, uh, there may have been a sexual assault, but the young person was more concerned about, I need to get back to work, right? So it was kind of like wanting to push this event out of their mind, but also keeping in mind that you know, they have a job to go to and they need to make money. So it's, it's a self-perceptive factor that, that happens after the assault. Um, often isolation happens. Uh, you, you feel like people won't understand what you've gone through um, or not wanting to tell people, especially if it's somebody that is a family member, if someone that everyone knows, you don't want to talk about it. The other issues that come up um, probably a couple of weeks or months after is the depression, um, the anxiety. Um, sometimes see these uh, maladaptive coping mechanisms such as alcohol use or trying to find other ways to numb the pain. Um, when you include the intersections of you know, poverty, uh, the intersections of, you know, uh, historical and cultural context of how Black women's sexuality has been viewed, it definitely exacerbates everything that I've talked about. So for, for Black women, it could be something as simple being seen as overly promiscuous, right? Like women, uh, Black women are just hypersexualized, right? And so, there is this belief that there won't be believed that they were raped or there'll be questions surrounding about um, the context of the rape. There's also this strong black woman um, complex that a lot of us have. Um, and you want to kind of like shove out that part and just move on with life. You know, this is something that just happens. 
and um, you go from there. So I think in order to really understand the post-assault consequences for Black women, it has to be an intersectional lens to look at everything that they're dealing with historically, contemporary, um, the pandemic, everything, to really understand what those consequences are for Black women. I'm glad you mentioned also the the pandemic, because I feel like that, you know, we've seen that's had such a differential impact um, on folks as well. Um, And also talked about that in terms of uh, interpersonal violence in the home um, in our last episode. And Carolyn, you've written about adult re-victimization of black women with documented histories of sexual abuse. Can you talk about how this uh, relates to some of the post-assault consequences that LaDonna mentioned? Yeah, it's directly related in some ways. It was a really interesting opportunity during my postdoc. And this was a, it, this was a data set of children in this particular area all went to the same hospital if they were reported for sexual abuse and then able to track them down 20 years or more later and re-interview them. And what uh, my colleagues and me, we found that if you had a child sexual abuse experience that involved physical force, you were at greater risk in adulthood of being re-victimized, sexually re-victimized, raped as an adult, and are also physically re-victimized and with the intimate partner. Those survivors also were more likely to be engaged in prostitution and sex work. And again, that probably had to be due to their poverty and lack of economic resources. And we also found that they had more reproductive health problems, uh, vaginal infection, sexually transmitted diseases, painful intercourse, a difficulty conceiving. So the bottom line is that those early sexual traumas can really set the stage, it, particularly if you don't get help for future health problems and relationship problems. And that means we really need to intervene earlier uh, so that survivors get the help that they need. I, I teach a class on sex crimes at my university and, uh, sex crimes and sexual violence. And we were just having this conversation the other day. Uh, and more than one student came to me after the conversation and said, I didn't realize that these reproductive health issues uh, that I have been dealing with for years and years and years are related to the experiences that I had. And perhaps it's because I didn't get the help that I needed uh, when I needed it. So, you know, it just drives home the point that research does actually imitate real life, right? And sometimes we, we forget that the research subjects that we have are actually real living humans um, with real life consequences. So thank you for sharing that, Karen. Um, so following up on that, LaDonna, um, you've written about the impact of multiple traumatic victimizations on disclosure and coping mechanisms for Black women. Uh, in fact, your dissertation was about Uh, multiple sexual victimizations. Uh, Can you talk about this some? Sure. So um, I love what Carolyn just said, because I was like, that's exactly what I found in a nutshell. Um, So my my dissertation was really a mixed method approach of, uh, you know, quantitative work, but I also really wanted to talk to the women. Um, I always feel like talking to um, people about their experiences, just it, you can't capture that any other way except talking to people and, and understanding what they've gone through. Um, so really, it was about understanding how multiple traumatic events, um, everything from suicide ideation or suicide attempts, um, witnessing or experiencing other types of violence, including domestic violence, um, neighborhood violence, um, all kinds of traumatic events, how those experiences in one's life lead to certain coping mechanisms. And this includes sexual victimization. Um, And so overall, what I found is that those who experienced uh, child sexual assault had more violent experiences with adult sexual assault. So that means that like there was more likely to have a, a use of a weapon 
um, more likely to experience injury uh, during the, the sexual assault. Uh, so uh, they also experience more stressful life events. And, and this could be um, having loved ones die due to an accident or illness or um, witnessing violence. So, for example, I think there are about 495 women, black women in this study, about 45% of them stated that someone close to them died from an accident, homicide or suicide. Over half uh, reported, you know, uh, physical abuse at some point in their life. And the women were on average about between 30 and 40. So by that point, they had experienced some type of physical abuse. Over 40% had been threatened with a weapon at some point in their life. And then about 35% said that they had witnessed someone being killed, injured, physically assaulted. Uh, so they've experienced a lot up until this point, uh, more than I would think a lot of people have in the United States. Uh, so one interesting thing that I found that a lot of them um, had use alcohol as a coping mechanism. Like this was something to numb the pain, to kind of like put things out of their mind. Uh, and also, on the other hand, they use religion, right? So religion was used as a coping mechanism um, and actually kind of offset some of those effects. I'd be interested to see how that progresses later on uh, in the future. I know religion is you know, kind of not playing the same role as perhaps it, it might be with younger generations. So I'm really interested to see if that still plays a role. Uh, but definitely, I would say Black women overall, but women who experienced sexual victimization early on in life had all these other factors. Later, um, more extreme variations of sexual abuse and it's definitely painting a picture that a lot of trauma is going on in a lot of Black women's lives. So I'm wondering, too, I think a lot of times when we talk about re-victimization, people can see that or hear that as somehow victim blaming. Um, and can you talk a little bit about or disentangle a little bit why the re-victimization might be occurring? Yeah, so I can I can use a, a, a really good example. Um, so one of the people that I talked to, uh, and I and she her story sticks with me more than anybody is that she was a, a young girl who experienced physical assaults from her her parents, right? And so um, she felt guilt and shame for that, and. Later on, around 17, she um, was sexually assaulted by someone in the neighborhood that she knew. She didn't feel comfortable um, reporting him to her family. Family wasn't very supportive of her. Um, that assault happened. That assault resorted in her going back home and um, getting a weapon. And she actually killed her, her perpetrator. She did some time for that. And so when she got out, she was ostracized from the community. So they saw her in a different light after all of that happened. And she said she felt isolated, alone, but she also blamed herself for a lot of it. She, she said, it's something about me that's attracting all of these people. Um, so I, I think it was a confluence of factors that in some ways, the harm that was done to her had been normalized, right? Like she felt like in some way, it's something about me that's attracting all of these people. Um, and therefore, she thought it was normal, right? She, mm -hmm. she thought this was just something that, that just happens to people like me in neighborhoods like this. So I think sometimes with re-victimization, it, 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 something that plays a role in it is, you know, the guilt, the shame, but also the people that you may be attracted to and people who are attracted to you. Um, it, it's a lot of a confluence of factors that, um, that happen 
and yeah, it's very complex. It, yeah. it very it, it just is so complex about how revictimization happens. Mm-hmm. I think we really need to turn the lens on perpetrators who are like sharks and they mm-hmm. they go after the most vulnerable people and they can they can pick up on signs that someone has been victimized and those are the people they target because they know that oftentimes they won't be believed. Uh, so people who are already vulnerable in some ways. And then, you know, sometimes sexual trauma may lead to the drop out of school and you have no economic resources, no education, which leads you to, you know, do sex work or to be, you know, have you know, unstable housing. Uh, victimization may cause you to use various substances and perpetrators target those individuals as well. So, just being very cautious about not focusing on what the victim did or did not do and focus on why systems aren't prepared to support survivors and why perpetrators target these particular individuals. Thank you for exploring that and explaining that, because I do think too often, we all know too often, the focus is on what the victim was doing, what where they were, what they were wearing, what they did, what they were, what if they were drinking or using drugs, when in fact, we really should be talking about why this happened on the perpetrator side, why they were targeted if they were, and then what how systems can fail victims because they so very often do. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, in our last episode, uh, we spoke about how the media sort of drives our perceptions about, quote, real victims. Uh, Carolyn, much of your work has focused on sexualized images and also media representations of black women and girls. So you wrote and produced a documentary called Let Me Tell Y'all About Black Chicks, Images of Black Women in Pornography. And you also consulted on a documentary that's on stars, which we'll link to, called Subjects of Desire, which also followed your research. So can you tell us about how you came to do this particular research and the kinds of questions you asked and what you learned from this work? Yeah, this has been some of the most difficult work I've, that I've done recently. And so I I was working with a group of colleagues on a academic journal, Sexualization Media and Society, and they were all looking at pornography, but nobody was looking at race and racism in pornography. And that just really struck me as very odd. So I thought, well, I'll just start to look and see if those images are different there. And so I worked with a group of students. We did a content analysis of the front and back covers of pornographic uh, uh, movies from from the last 20 years or so, because I wanted to see how things had changed over time. And I was deeply disturbed by what I was seeing. Uh, I mean, pornography obviously sexualizes everybody. But when you add the combination of racism and sexism in pornography, the images just seem just so much more egregious. And what we were finding, well, a number of things we found, is that there's definitely a hierarchy of beauty in pornography. So darker skin, black women were, there were more disparaging terms used for them than women of other ethnic backgrounds. We also found that black women were overrepresented in depictions as prostitutes, as sex workers, um, we found that black women tended to be depicted more in urban settings. So like rundown buildings and in, in ghettos. And so it was classism as well as racism and sexism there. Uh, found that black women were generally reduced to one body part. And that comes out of history. They were mostly f- featured in films with big butts. Uh, and just that the language of pimping was used a lot. I mean, they would really come out and just openly say, you know, this is about pimping black women. So, so it's a lot of, a lot of sexual violence there. And I think in pornography, there's a sense that you can be openly, uh, racist in a way that you couldn't be in other forms of media. 
So it was really deeply depressing work to be doing. Yeah, you know, it makes me think about how this these kind of images are normalized and how um, people feel that it's okay to consume this. Right? I've been actually working with men's organizations to talk about many men who are involved in purchasing sex, which is really... Uh, when these are minors, this is child sexual abuse, are also heavy consumers of pornography. So it made sense to me to be asking, well, what are they consuming? And how does pornography, and this is all mainstream pornography, contributes to this, uh, another form of sexual violence against Black women. And I think we need to be having these really hard conversations. Absolutely. Um, can we, you know, go from this conversation we've been having and dive into a conversation about how media depictions impact how the broader society views black women and girls, like both in the immediate aftermath of victimization and how this shapes services, outreach, uh, criminal legal and other responses, right? Because there has to be a correlation between what we're seeing in pornographic images and how people view Black women and girls more generally. So I found it quite fascinating what, what you were talking about. It, re, it it reminded me so much when you were talking about the big butts of like Sarah Bartman um, and, and how Black women have historically been seen um, in, in, you know, museums to to movies and it's it's i'll I'll go back to that reference because i think it's important because we all we often don't talk about the history of that and that's included in the documentaries documentary that i did uh sarah bartman was a south african woman who was brought to europe because at the time they were really fascinated by her body type which she had a a large backside and she was put on display at fashionable parties and then she died very young, and then they put her body on display at a, a French museum. And so she was still in death. She was still sort of objectified in that way. And it wasn't until the late 2000s or something that they returned her body for a proper burial. So this history of Black women being on the auction block, of being sold, of being dehumanized, being objectified, all of those things lay the foundation for sexual violence in this culture. And it also reminds me of, I mean, even something that's mundane as, I don't know, Law and Order or any other movies and, and shows that we look at. If you look at how Black women are typically depicted, but the colorism is real. Uh, that, you know, like you know, if you're, you're darker skin, there's this, this motif of aggressive and, you know, angry, um, and that you don't always see with lighter skinned black women. But that also holds a narrative when you get into a, a legal realm, right? Like if that's the only thing you've ever seen of black people, then that's who you think they are. Um, police officers are, are, are humans as well. They are not, um, not susceptible to those stereotypes as well. So it could be anything from, you know, well, that's how black women act or, you know, uh, black women don't need as many services because, you know, they can handle their own. They're tough. They're, you know, they don't need all of those things or black women are promiscuous to, you know, it could be police officers even soliciting black women um, at, at multiple times. So I think it does kind of bind over into those legal practices as well. You know, Georgetown University did a study, A Girlhood Interrupted, the Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood. And it goes back to those images, Alyssa, that you talked about, and that we all talked about, that this they asked adults their perceptions of Black girls. And adults said things like Black girls, they perceive them compared to white girls as leading, needing less nurturing, less protection, needed to be supported less, were more independent. They perceive Black girls as knowing more about adult topics, knowing more about sex. All of those things come out of our enslaved past that shaped how 
adults in the, the rest of the community and culture sees Black women now and also makes it very difficult for them to access services. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important for our listeners and other folks to start seeing those connections so we can have more impactful conversations about how we can better serve the people in our communities. So I was wondering if either of you want to talk about how our current criminal legal responses and why Black women may not necessarily trust the criminal legal system. Yes. So there are a couple of reasons, Um, not only the historical context. So in in one way, most people don't realize that our current uh, police system has major roots in slavery. Some of the, you know, the the first, uh, you know, police officers were people who were, um, you know, catching runaway slaves like that. That's really the beginnings of law enforcement. And unfortunately, for a lot of black people, there has never been an establishment of seeing officer friendly uh, like it might be for other um, communities. So I, I think if we begin there, there's there's this disconnect, but also this distrust of law enforcement. They're not seen as the people who come and help you when you're in trouble, but perhaps cause trouble uh, more than is already there. Uh, so you have that. You have present day inequalities, um, over policing of neighborhoods, you know, racist interactions with police. All of those leave black women skeptical of trusting police. Uh, and I'm sorry, Linda, I have to interrupt too. The failure to uh, process rape kits, a disproportionate number of those are, are rapes that were committed against black women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And on the other hand, when we talk about those historical uh, concepts of black women as being aggressive, black women have never been afforded the protection that other women have had. So many of them have experienced similar, um, you know, violence at the hand of police officers that maybe other women have not. So they are also having their own experiences with police brutality um, and also seeing loved ones experience police brutality. So at the beginning, if you have a black woman who has been sexually assaulted, um, Law enforcement is probably not the first people they're going to be seeking out to help them. I mean, most people anyway seek the uh, assistance of family and friends. Law enforcement really is not the people that you go to when you have those particular things going on. So I think they are the police are the kind of the gatekeepers, right? Like they're the first people to take the report and talk to you. If you're not willing to have a conversation for a multitude of legitimate reasons, most of all, there's probably stereotypes and they're probably not going to help you, give you the help that you need, then your entrance into the criminal legal system of doing any kind of um, adjudication is is not going to happen. And we have to understand, too, for most of this country's history, rape against Black women was not illegal. They were chattel property. They weren't even seen as human beings. And the the laws were written in a way that, you know, rape of Native women, Indigenous women and Black women was not a crime. So we've lived with that. And that's permeated the legal system from the, the establishment of this country. You know, as you two were speaking, I was thinking about, um, you know, the link between the history of policing, right? The, the, the origins of policing in this country, as you said, LaDonna was around, you know, trying to capture escaped slaves, right? And, you know, Carolyn, you were talking about how, you know, the rape of black women was not seen, it was totally legal. And, you know, a few minutes ago, you talked about rape kits not being processed and that a disproportionate number of those rape kits were against, were, were rapes against black women. Well, it, it's no surprise to me. And I hope our listeners can see this link that if the history of policing is linked to slavery, like the system was never designed to protect black people, then why would the system process rape kits? right, on rapes against Black women, right? There's a direct line here 
And it all comes to when we think about sex trafficking and more attention being drawn to that. And the biggest sex trafficking that happened was in this country with enslaved people, enslaved Black people. And so, and we still see that process today. If you look at the statistics, uh, if you're a minor under the age of 18, you can't legally participate you can't be a prostitute. You can't sell sex. You're a victim of sexual abuse. But yet, according to the FBI statistics, 59% of prostitution, African-American children were 59% of these prostitution arrests of people under the age of 18, when really they should be given services. And those images and that history all relate to why they aren't given services. And we don't see them as, as survivors of sexual violence. We treat them, we criminalize them. And I think it's really important um, that people understand. I, I think people have a, a particular vision when they think of sex trafficking. They think of someone who's come from Europe somewhere and, you know, has been brought over to, to be in like uh, dance clubs and everything. But no one really thinks about things like domestic sex trafficking that, you know, like you can just be taken from Illinois to Indiana um, and, and that is trafficking. There are lots of young girls who were born in the United States that are trafficked from state to state or from, you know, county to county that meet the definition of sex trafficking. So I think people have this perception of what it is versus the reality of what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about the statistic you just gave, Carolyn about, you know, 59% of children uh, who, make sure I get this correct, uh, of people who were arrested for prostitution, 59% of them were black girls under the age of 18. So they should have been receiving services. Well, if we go back to the previous Georgetown, Georgetown study that you were talking about, well, if we see black girls as uh, having more knowledge of adult topics, uh Right. All of these things that you stated before, then it makes sense that the system would see them as criminals and not as victims of sexual abuse. How do we change that narrative? By making the invisible more visible and talking about where these where these stereotypes and myths come from and talking. We have to stop avoiding conversations around race and racism in this field, uh, because that's not going to advance the field. So really helping people understand, putting this into a historic lens, an intersectional lens that LaDonna talked about as well. um, I think those things are critical. Yeah, and I think some of these conversations are really hard to have. Uh, especially in the black community where you don't air dirty laundry. Um, and so, uh, I've, I've often in the past have felt my own intersection, um, at, at a crossroads of some sort where I feel like I'm, I'm made to choose between being black and being woman. And, and that has always bothered me where in some instances, I am supposed to negate that I'm a black woman and just co-sign to being black. And um, there are just topics that we tend to not want to talk about in the black community that definitely need to be talked about. The fact that there are a lot of young girls who are propositioned by older men that that should never happen. That's not normal. And then if something happens, then the young girl is considered fast, right? Like that's a fast girl. She's doing something that she shouldn't be doing. Instead of asking who is propositioning her and they are the adult. Uh, And so I I think that conversation definitely needs to happen um, in, in the black community. And I often feel that there's this tug of war of wanting to talk about it, but not really wanting to air that kind of uh, situation. Um, Carolyn, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, we're, we're not having these conversations that we should be having, both within the black community, but also it's in society at large. And part of that reason, I think, is because of the lack of media coverage 
you know, as we said in the last episode, we talked about missing white women syndrome, yet there are so many black women and girls who have gone missing that never come to the attention of the media. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's deeply disturbing. And I think, again, it's about whose value in society. And if historically, like I said, Black women were not even seen as rapeable because they were property. So their stories just don't get the kind of attention and traction uh, that it should. HBO just did a, a pretty good documentary series called Black and Missing and why these populations just don't get attention. And I think because they they aren't seen as people in positions of power don't look at these individuals and just kind of think, well, this could be my daughter or my wife, so I don't need to care. Or we just assume that they're engaging in a dangerous lifestyle. So it doesn't, you know, they kind of created this violence themselves. So they're not really victims. So part of it is seeing that anybody who would prey on the most vulnerable in our society, that I mean, that's hugely problematic and we need to care even more uh, and make sure that those, the most vulnerable also get resources. I'm really happy you brought that up because um, that was one of the things I was going to suggest uh, in terms of uh, looking at and reading. So I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the uh, Unforgotten 51 in Chicago. Uh, so it is a, a website that uh, a lot of journalism students at Roosevelt um, created. Uh, and then I know investigative discovery just did uh, something called the hunt for the Chicago Strangler. It can be sensationalized, but I think it gives you kind of a background to what's going on. So over the past decade, there have been at least 51 Chicago women who have been found strangled. Right. Um, They've been dumped in garbage cans. They've been dumped in alleys. They've been dumped in abandoned buildings, but no one has been caught. Right. And so. Over the past years, uh, law enforcement is like, no, there's no serial killer. You can't find the killer. We're not sure what's going on. But there are other people who believe, okay, there's probably more than one serial killer going on. And most of these women are from the South and West Side, predominantly Black areas. Uh, probably three quarters of the 51 women are Black, um, varying in ages. Uh, and so... It took a long time for the Chicago Police Department to say anything about this. And it took it actually being in the newspaper for it to start getting some light and people wanting to know, well, what should we be doing about this? And the unfortunate thing is that about two or three weeks ago in the news, there was another woman whose body was found dumped in. Um, a dumpster. Uh, and so this this website on Forgotten 51 actually puts names and faces to these women. Um, it, it talks to their family. It tells you who they were. They're not just a name. They're not just some number um, that you don't find any information about, but literally 51 women in the course of like a decade that we have no idea what has happened to them. I think maybe one they found out what happened and, it, and that was a uh, result of her partner killing her. But for the most part, we have no idea. They're cold cases. Um, but it didn't get the attention until recently. And this has been going on for quite a long time. I, I watched both of those documentaries and those the the lack of response on the part of law enforcement was heartbreaking. And Really, you see these families and communities activated to take control of the situation because there is no help coming, you know, from official sources. And it's I highly recommend these documentaries to and the organizations to both people or to our listeners. And we'll put links to all of that in our show notes as well. Um, but I'm wondering if we can talk also about how all of these factors influence healing processes for 
uh, victim survivors. I mean, the healing process is complex as can be, and it's oftentimes very individual with stops and starts and turns. Um, but can we talk a little bit about how the factors we've explored today impact that process? I think it certainly makes it much more complex when I think about uh, enslaved Black women. They had the choice of taking the secret of their sexual assault to the grave with them or going to the grave for revealing the sexual assault. There weren't very many choices for them. So I think historically Black women had to kind of develop this coping strategy where you just exuded strength because there was no safe place to talk about the trauma uh, associated with sexual assault. So we need to make spaces for them to be able to do that. Uh, Ida B. Wells, just reading her work really helped me cope with dealing with sexual assault during graduate school. And she was called a princess of the press. And so that really motivated me to write about sexual assault and do research in this area. And Ida B. Wells said, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. So we really need to start having conversations, sister circles or something where we're talking about uh, how our lives have been impacted by uh, sexual violence. We have to understand, too, that Black women have always been at the forefront of fighting sexual violence, the Me Too movement was started by a Black woman. Recy Taylor, the rape of Recy Taylor and Rosa Parks going to the South. And it was real common during the Jim Crow era, long after slavery had ended, where Black women were experiencing sexual assault. And people kind of know Rosa Parks as this older Black lady who sat on the bus, but she was fierce. She was a fierce rape activist. And she went and she collected information and she helped Recy Taylor uh, go to court and uh, filed complaints and lawsuits and such uh, and raise awareness about sexual assault. And so we need to kind of tap into that history of activism. And that is a big part of healing ourselves. Um, I've, I've definitely, over the, the, the past decade of, of going from, you know, um, Ray Crisis Hotline to being a medical advocate, fully understand now that it needs to be grassroots kind of initiatives to help talk to um, black women and help to, to heal a lot of those wounds. Um, you know, I, I would love to say therapy, but I also know that for a lot of people, that's not a accessible. Um, you know, I, I remember when I needed to go to therapy and I was in grad school that um, my therapist changed every year. And I can only imagine what it would be like for someone to to be in a system where, you know, they're they're in training and you have to change therapists and have to retell that story. It can be absolute. It's, it's painful. Um, only since having a full time job have I been able to have a therapist, but they're expensive. Um, and if you want to reach a huge population of people, we, it's kind of having to think outside the box. So I, I totally agree with Carolyn that it has to be like this community initiative, this grassroots kind of initiative where, um, you know, people are helping other people in the community um, mm-hmm. to kind of restore some of this harm that has been done. Yeah, you know, it thrives on silence, secrecy and shame. So talking about that is going to be critical, but also what's going on with perpetrators? You have to deal with perpetration if we want to reduce the number of victims. And I just really think about the R. Kelly situation and how profoundly damaged he was to engage in the conduct that he was doing and how other people in the community saw and didn't intervene. So it's it's going to have to not just be healing for the the survivors, but holding perpetrators accountable and also dealing whatever trauma they've had so that they don't victimize other people too. 
Yeah. And that's one thing that I, I, when I was talking about having to choose between my race and my gender, you know, I start thinking of the R. Kelly and the the Bill Cosby and the, the lesser known Mike Tyson that seems to kind of like go out and, and to the wayside. And I kind of liken it to like, we don't talk about Bruno, like we don't talk about R. Kelly. Um, you know, you just either you love him and you, you love his music and you don't want to think about it or you're in the camp where no he is definitely not somebody that um, you want to partake in at all and it's such a divisive thing and I think part of that divisiveness is that in our community we hold certain people in esteem and to see that that fall I think is hard for certain people but in order to keep everybody in the community safe, those things need to be addressed. And I, I think I always find myself in the camp of where this person needs to be held accountable. Um, I hear everything under the rainbow as to why we shouldn't. But we have to. We have to. If we want this community to heal, if we want to, you know, have a better community for our women, a safe community, it has to be talked about. So, you know, you've both been talking about sort of where the next question was leading, which is where do we go from here? So you've talked some about the need to hold people accountable in order to keep the entire community safe. We have to hold people who have caused harm accountable for their actions. What else needs to happen? Where else, you know, what other avenues do we have? Where do you go from here? Uh, policy advocacy, um, thinking about organizations like Black Women's Blueprint, who, and they've been doing work around this issue. My colleagues at Sasha Center, who work with uh, Black survivors of sexual uh, violence. Uh, there's a new, there's a newer group, We As Ourselves. And that's specifically for, you know, Black women survivors, kind of like a Me Too type movement. But we have to change laws so that uh, people can have access to legal remedies if that is what's going to work best for them. Uh, and we just have to just with that organization says start by believing and really start just seeing Black women as, as survivors, something that seems so simple but radical, given that for hundreds of years we haven't even seen them as survivors and victims. Donna, do you have anything you want to add? The only thing I, I would add is that um, I also think that some of our institutional policies has to change as well. Uh, so I can definitely say as a, a medical advocate, um, a lot of the policies that were there that were supposed to be a help was a hindrance. Mm. And it, it wasn't meant to be a hindrance, but because of the particular person that was in the room and their experiences, it didn't help at all. Uh, so for example, for a medical advocate, Police are automatically called here, right? No matter whether or not police want to, I mean, the, the uh, survivor wants to talk to police or not, they're automatically called. Unfortunately, um, oftentimes police make it there before us because the hospital doesn't let us know until perhaps the survivor has been there like 45 minutes or an hour. So we never get the chance or sometimes we don't get the chance to tell the survivor, you don't have to talk to this person if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've had encounters where I've walked into the room, they've already had the police officer there. It did not go well. And that just kind of sets up for a series of other unfortunate events. Um, sometimes you get, uh, Nurses who are not uh, sane nurses, which is someone who's uh, trained in sexual assault and rape kits and everything. Sometimes they're not trained. They have no idea what to do with the rape kit. I've had situations where I had to help the nurse understand how the rape kit should go, uh, which definitely should not be the case. So um, 
I've had instances where, where doctors were very pushy about certain things because they said it was in their, their job description. Um, you know, having young girls who found out that they were pregnant and did not want the child and wanted an abortion. But the doctor was like, because of who I am, I have to prescribe X, Y, and Z. And there was this uh, confrontation between the doctor and the survivor because survivor was like, I don't need any of those appointments because I'm not having this baby. The doctor was like, because of who I am, I have to give you these appointments. So it was on top of everything she had experienced. She's now having to battle with the doctor. All of that is to say is that sometimes policies that we have, we have blanket policies. We think it's going to be a one size fit all everybody's going to be fine with it, but there are certain people in certain situations where it's not going to work for them. And those are some of the things, some of the policies that we really need to to kind of reevaluate because it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, I think you said something so important and it's something I think the criminal legal system does, medical systems do, all of our systems do is they're designed as a one size fits all. And it's just not the reality of of who goes through these experiences. And I think it's just going to take an all hands on deck change, you know, to to make any movement in those areas. And I know we've talked a lot about what needs to change and where we are, but I'm wondering if either of you would like to talk about what gives you hope, what you've seen moving forward that you're hopeful for. I would say young people. <laughs> um, not that I think I'm, I'm old or anybody's old, but I, I think, you know, some of my students are really are awe inspiring. Um, I feel like they take better care of their mental health more than a lot of people I know. Like they're very aware of needing to go to therapy. I was like, at your age, I didn't know anything about therapy. Um, that alone gives me hope. But there seem to be so many more activists and wanting to create change and, you know, more understanding of, you know, LGBTQ, um, understanding that um, uniqueness is not bad, that, you know, like everybody can be a part of this community and, and function well, that, you know, sexual victimization should be talked about, uh, you know, even in, in, you know, elementary school and high school and in college. So I, for me, it's, it's the next generation coming up because I see so much in them that was missing from my generation that we just weren't that enlightened. So I, I think people mm-hmm. in the next generation give me hope. Yeah, I would say so too. I mean, the younger uh, people that are coming up that I'm mentoring and helping with their writing and, and all of that, seeing, articles and books and uh, social media posts and things like that, where people are really feeling much more liberated to talk about those topics. I I think that's gratifying to me. So uh, we've talked a lot about uh, uh, readings or videos. We've mentioned a lot of things that we're going to be putting in the show notes um, do you have any other recommendations that you want to name? And before you do, I will say that I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, Carolyn, you know, Dr. West's uh, documentary. And if you go to her website, which we will link in the show notes, there's a talk that you give about the documentary. And it is, I've watched it multiple times. It is a really important watch. <laughs> There's another documentary that I love, No, the Rape Documentary on on Black Women and Rape. That would be a really great place to start. And definitely organizations like We As Ourselves, uh, Black Women's Blueprint, Ujima, I I sit on their board, and they do good work on gender-based violence in Black communities, so not just African Americans, but Caribbean, immigrant uh, so I think organizations out there that are doing some pretty good work. For me, I I, I really, this is like my quintessential book in, in grad school. And um, it was such an easy read, but also comforting to know that I wasn't alone and that 
there were other Black women who were experiencing the same thing. And it's called Surviving the Silence, Black Women's Stories of Rape by Charlotte Pierce Baker. Um, and she gives her own story, um, really profound story, but also other Black women's story. So it's, it's, it's really a powerful read. Um, I would also suggest uh, Beth Ritchie, um, Arrested Justice, uh, Black Women of Violence in America's Prison Nation, where it, 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 if you're looking for intersectionality and how sexual victimization um, and other confluences uh, can really impact Black women, I think that that's a great read as well. Thank you both so much for sharing those resources. And as Alyssa said, we'll definitely add those in our show notes. So before we wrap up, uh, do either of you have any final thoughts or last words you'd like to share? Um, I would just like to say thank you so much. This was uh, this was great. I, I don't I don't have the avenue to really talk about this at length. Um, and, and the things that I, I, I do right now. So it was, it's really, it's been, I think, a lifelong thing that I've always wanted to do to kind of talk about Black women and their experiences and, and help people understand what Black women go through. I, I feel like that is something that I, I was meant to do. And so this has been a culmination of that. Um, and I, I really do hope that people who listen have a better understanding of how these things can impact Black women, especially if you're you're going to be a therapist or a counselor or work in the legal system. Um, I, I think it's so important to have this background so that when you encounter Black women, you understand how they react or their reactions instead of um, presuming you know what those reactions are. Yeah, and I would add, echo that as well. No matter what your background is, we all need to care uh, about this topic. So it's not something that's just limited to Black women or need to be concerned or a problem that we can just fix by ourselves. Whatever, whatever background you're coming from, we all need to care about this topic. Thank you both so much for that. And, you know, this podcast comes from wanting more people to care about this topic. And I hope that, you know, we're reaching those goals. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast is written and hosted by Alexis Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or questions about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.